All right. It is good to be back. For those who I don't know, um, good to see you. Good to meet you. For those that I do know, it's great to see you again. We're going to be in Psalm 16. You can start turning there now. Uh, and walking into the building uh, today, I, I just was so freshly uh, encouraged to hear the voices already singing. Uh, as the Hendersons and the Hueys served us this morning. And then Rick just did a phenomenal job leading us through communion to savor our Savior. Uh, and so we've been so well served already this morning. Um, but I'm just really, really excited because as great as these uh, tunes we've heard today and the, the words that have been said, the greatest words are in these verses the inspired, inerrant, powerful, and binding and healing words of our Lord. Before I jump into Psalm 16, I bring greetings from Covenant Fellowship Church. We uh, over there are so grateful for you. We are so excited about this building. We know the church isn't the building, it's the people, but buildings are strategic, aren't they? And they give you a, a footprint in the community, and it's been cool to meet Phil and others who have come to the church as a result of it being in this location. Um, so we're rejoicing with you. We pray for you. And we do ask that you keep praying for us as we uh, seek to continue our witness in Glen Mills. Are you with me in Psalm 16? All right, let's read there together. For some of you, this might be uh, one of your favorite passages in the Bible. Others of you haven't read it yet. I hope it becomes that today. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May God bless the preaching of his word. There is there's so much to mine in these passages, but a lot of it has to do with confidence. There's little in my life I find more funny than misplaced confidence. My boys, Tristan and Lincoln, like to work out with me, 
And after a workout, they flex their muscles and they expect me and Missy to be completely impressed with the size of their muscles. It's hilarious. That same idea of misplaced confidence is behind some of my favorite tweets. I don't know if you like Twitter. I like it too much. Confession time. Uh, But here's a couple of my favorite tweets. Lord, give me the confidence of those who comment on articles without reading beyond the headline. We all know who you are. (laughs) Lord, give me the confidence of a man armed with Wikipedia trying to explain history to a historian. Lord, give me the confidence of one out of eight men who statistically think they could win a point in the game of tennis against Serena Williams. That's not going to happen. Now, as funny as this is, there are those in the world who would point at Christians and laugh at our confidence and say it's laughably misplaced. I remember the voices in college saying, isn't it so funny that way that these Christians puff out their chest and sing They're sometimes the weakest in the world. But even in the face of desperate circumstances like this song, God tells us, brothers and sisters, that we can live as confident people, joyful people, and not a laughable confidence, wishful thinking, or misplaced faith. Real, cement, granite, dependable confidence. Stake your life on it, confidence. But I wonder... Has your confidence in God been shaken by the last few years? Whether it's OG COVID, Delta COVID, Oma COVID, or whatever Megatron variants coming in the future, how has your confidence in God been affected? Politically, as the nation's gone up and down. Financially, as inflation threatens. Where's your confidence this morning? You really may have lost financial, political, relational, or even your own health security this year. And at my church, guys, at Covenant, I've really felt the struggles of trying to lead people through such a divisive time. So the question for all of us today is, how has our experience the last few years impacted our confidence in God? But despite the shaking of our world, despite the shaking of your world, God calls us to an unshakable confidence in Him alone in this passage. When our faith is shaken, we're tempted to look elsewhere. We're tempted to look for a physical kingdom right now that I can feel a leader I can believe in. We're tempted to look for temporary feelings of pleasure to mask our, 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 our lack of confidence. And we can even mix God with other sources of confidence to try to compensate for things when we feel like He's not in control of our lives. But this song of confident faith directs our eyes to the source, the strength, and the result of our confidence in God. So let's look at those three together. First the source, then the strength, and then the result. In the beginning of this text, we see in verse 2 through 6, this source. And there's only one. These verses declare that it's God Himself. Nearly every single section of this psalm begins by speaking of a single-minded devotion to God. Of going all in with God. 
saying, no matter what, all of me is in your hands. First in verse 2, he says that Yahweh, all caps Lord, is his Lord, his king. So there might be all kinds of kings around David at this time as he writes, threatening him, saying, bow before me, and he refuses. He will bow his knee to Yahweh alone. And then he goes on to say that his good is defined by the good of God. He says, I have no good apart from you. And then from verse 2 to verse 3, David's delight in his king spills over in love for God's people. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That's a strong word, isn't it? But as soon as he says that about the saints in the land, he quickly contrasts it with how he feels about the wicked. While the saints are excellent in godliness, the wicked run after other gods in idolatry. And far from delighting in them, David says he won't even put their names on his lips. That's some serious shade. Here's a word for us. Our delight in God should produce in us a delight for one another. Not because we're attractive, not because we're fun or cool or the the best thing going on in our lives, but because as you look around this room, these are the saints in the land. These are the saints who have been bought by the blood of Christ. For David, they were in the land. For us, they're in Christ. They very well may annoy you, bother you, ghost you, burn you, sin against you. But Jesus thought they were worth loving. Jesus delights in them. Jesus laid down his life for them. And so we too should have this heart for one another. Now specifically this psalm calls us to delight in the godliness of people. Their excellence. That's kind of a weird word. The only one I've ever heard say that is Bill and Ted. They're like, excellent, right? That's not what this is talking about. This is looking at someone's life and observing God's character in them. Seeing them display godliness. Now, what do we know about Israel at the time of David? Well, he was dethroned at a certain point. He was chased by the king of Israel. This type of delighting in the saints in the land is an incredibly charitable opinion about the people of God, isn't it? You see, to have this type of delight in the saints in the land requires eyes that are constantly searching for evidences of grace. Recently, I was talking to a friend who's a missionary in Thailand. And uh, I was talking to him about things we're doing at Covenant to try to help our, our heart for the nations grow. And he just said, brother, you're just doing such a great job. He took like 10 minutes to give me this encouragement. I'm trying to talk to him, learn from him, and he just can't stop encouraging me. Here I am, a guy who's never been on any type of missionary journey, who's taking very small steps at my church to try to steward this in an area that's been weak in our church. And this guy who's given his entire life to follow Jesus, to reach the unreached, spends the whole time encouraging me. Because this brother is delighting in the saints in the land, even in their weakness and imperfection. He had eyes searching for grace in that phone conversation. 
Do you delight in the saints in this way? Are you a grace-finding friend, a grace-finding spouse, a grace-finding parent, a grace-finding child? Are you cultivating, stewarding, cherishing, and delighting in grace at work, at home, in your neighborhood? On the flip side, do you envy the ungodly? Brothers and sisters, we may look around us at men and women that are living their lives for their own glory and only see them kind of having a happy, uh, successful life, but there's one end to that. Their sorrows shall multiply. Their happiness is short-lived. Do not be jealous of these folks. Pity them. They are, in some, some cases, if they don't respond to the gospel, merely being fattened for the slaughter to come. We should pity. We should reach out. We should call them to know Christ. The goodness of this world is an intoxicating flirt, but it's a disastrous marriage. Delight is the promise of following God, and sorrow is the end of all other roads. So our confidence flows from a delight in the goodness of God into a cherishing of His people. And picking back up with the theme of the land from verse 3, we read one of the most beautiful statements of contentment in the entire Old Testament in verse 5. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And here you have to kind of think like an Israelite. You remember how Israel was divided up into the 12 tribes? They were each given their own land. So David's using this as a metaphor here for the inheritance division in his own life. And you know what he says? It's not, oh, this section of Israel is my inheritance. What does he say is his inheritance? The Lord is my inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, not because of the geographic region I've been given, not because of the wealth or the throne that he sat upon, but because of the God that he served. Remember, David started this psalm saying, deliver me, preserve me, O God. And in the midst of real challenge and struggle, in the times that were not peaceful, he could say, I'm blessed, and I'm privileged in beautiful ways. I'm the most undeservingly blessed guy I know. Why? Because I've got the Lord. And brothers and sisters, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you have a beautiful inheritance. Whether you are in a happy marriage, you have godly, obedient children or not, guess what? You have the Lord. Whether you've got a 401k that's building, whether you've got a beautiful future in front of you, whether your last doctor's appointment showed a good status of health, you have the most precious, glorious thing that could ever be given to you. And His name is Jesus Christ. Amen? So you know what should start welling up in our chests right now as we consider this? As David considered this? We should move from panic and fear of the world to sweet contentment. To an understanding of, hey, I might lose everything, but I can't lose the most important thing. The one who holds my lot in Jesus. He's Jesus. Amen. Amen. I need that word. There's a secret to contentment. To the courage and the confidence that we crave, 
that's described in these verses and is accessible to us, even when we're reeling from going 12 rounds with a pandemic. And the source of that confidence is in fixing our eyes on God. He says in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before my eyes. I have set the Lord always before my eyes. How did he get to this place of confidence? From meditating on, communing with, and pursuing Christ. The result is contentment. It's a a gift. You can't trust your way into this. You can't just try harder. You need something outside of yourself. David's not a great example of a self-reliant, happy person. He found his faith from God. When we cry out to God and we fix our eyes on Him, we remember the cross, remember that He's our inheritance, grace floods into our hearts. There's no secret beyond beholding and cherishing God. That is the way we grow. Focusing on God is means that we're viewing even the hardships of life as under His dominion. So, I don't know what you're going through right now, but there's something that bothers you. Maybe there's something that you like are like, that is the thing that I can't trust God with. You want to grow in contentment, grow in confidence? Bow your knee to the Lord as your king in that circumstance. Embrace His good for your life as your only good. That doesn't mean you don't cry out for deliverance like David did. It doesn't mean you don't lament, but it does mean you go all in with Lord, the Lord in that specific circumstance. Confidence is the fruit of the laser vision of the saints on the unstoppable, glorious God. So that's the source. It's fixing our eyes on the Lord, beholding Him. Now let's consider the strength that we receive when we do that. Verse 7 and 8 describe the personal help and guidance that David received when he trusted in the goodness of God. This is David kind of telling us, let me tell you how God's been faithful to me. You ever had someone do that with you? It's a great conversation. Maybe you do that at lunch today. Or maybe you get depressed over the Eagles game like me. In verse, in verse 7, he says that God gave him counsel while he was asleep, while he was in his bed. And I'll tell you what, I taught chemistry for a long time, and a lot of people fell asleep. I did not teach them anything in those moments. <laughs> but apparently God can even form our hearts while we're sleeping. We sleep in peace because God is awake. Verse 8, then, David says that God went before him as he journeyed. We know David did lots of journeying. Sometimes he was living his whole life running around from cave to cave. God went before him and prepared a place for him. He holds his right hand, his fighting hand, as he battles. So as he, a, a battle-worn soldiers trying to hold up their sword, they can barely hold it up. We have these visions of knights battling and these glorious things, but they're probably like, you know, barely getting that sword up. This is an image of God giving strength to the battle as the day goes on and empowering David with a strength. And then finally, we hear his voice rise in triumph, almost like gladiator 
you know, when he says, uh, you know, are you not entertained almost, but he says, I shall not be shaken. A defiant cry of confidence from verse 1 to 8 now. He has gone for a complete reversal. He said, preserve me, O God. I need refuge too. I shall not be shaken. He's encountered in beholding the Lord strength to help in his struggle. He sought refuge, and now he's assured that God will keep him. He got here by setting the Lord before him. He is with you in your sleep. Those of you who have not been able to sleep recently, he is with you. He is strengthening you. He has not forgotten you at night. He's with you as you journey. You just change locations as a church. God has gone before you here in Prospect Park. You may only feel struggle in the move. The Lord is with you to strengthen you. He's with you as you battle. Some of you are stuck, it feels like, in a battle with sin. Lord is strengthening your right hand. Now, the remaining verses of this psalm have two statements about the incredible happiness that results from this that we'll talk about in a second, but they sandwich the most powerful statement about the strength of our confidence, okay? So there's one more thing to pull out of here. He says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Joy, right? Happiness. And then my flesh also dwells secure. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So how strong is our confidence? Stronger than death. Sheol, the holding place of the dead. If you don't know Christ, let me just pause here. There is a hope and a strength of confidence that comes for those who place their hope in Jesus. But for those who try to rely on their own, death is an undeniable reality that haunts everyone. There is a masking of death that we see in our world, a pushing it to the side. Let's not think about it. Let's not talk about it. Let's move on from it. All it does is delay the inevitable. Death is the result of our sin. All of us sinned in our hearts and fall short of the perfect standard that God requires. And so death is waiting for each one of us. And after that, an eternal judgment, righteous wrath for every sin that we've committed because our God is a righteous and holy God. But why can David have confidence over death? It's because Jesus saw our affliction. God saw our affliction, our death, and He entered into it. Jesus came and lived the life that we couldn't perfectly. And then He gave up His life on the cross so that everyone who couldn't do it, everybody who failed, every miserable person that ruined their life could find hope, could find confidence 
in Jesus Christ by saying, Lord, please save me. I can't do it. I need you. I give you my life. And when he died, he took away our death. He took away our condemnation, our wrath forever. So that now if you trust in the Lord, you can know without a doubt that death is but a gateway to an eternity of everlasting happiness. You see, you know what? This passage in the Old Testament definitely talks about Jesus. You know how we know that? Well, Paul and Peter were preaching sermons, and they just dropped this text out of the blue. And they say, this talked about Jesus. Because you know what? David did die. He's dead right now. But there was one who was the Holy One who would come. And he would not see corruption forever. You see, when Paul preached in city in Antioch, and when Peter preached at Pentecost, that this related to Christ, he was saying that the Holy One Jesus would come, and he would enter into death, and he would rise from the grave, and the death would not be able to hold him in the ground, so that now you and I can look at Jesus and see that he rose from the grave and have that kind of confidence in our life. Verse 10 is not about David. It's about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we can know without a doubt, even beyond what David knew when he penned these verses, that we're not forsaken, we're not shaken, because Jesus came and died and rose again. So that now, no matter how weak we are, how unhealthy we are, no matter how our nation's doing, we know our future is a resurrection. Our future is life is confidence we will not be abandoned because Jesus was abandoned for us and then rose from the grave. Guys, God is calling you to courage today. He's calling you to be a noble warrior of faith in His army. Confident Christians, when others are, are just driven by, by politics, just so scared just hating everyone, claiming, claiming that, that there's just one political leader. He's calling you to claim Christ. He's calling you to put all your faith in Him and to stand confident. And He's calling you to joy. That's the result of this confidence. The source is God beholding Him, giving us intimate strength in our battles. And that leads us to joy. What kind of effect should this have on us? We should be the happiest people on earth, guys. Not because we're like real talkative, bubbly people. Joy for every Enneagram number, whatever that is. This is a happy, worshipful community that God is forming. But it's a happiness that's different than the world's happiness. Roy Halladay was one of my favorite pitchers to ever play for the Phillies. Josiah, where you at? I know you loved him too, right? Yeah. <laughs> On uh, May 29th of 2010, which is over 10 years ago, which is crazy, this was the call on the radio when he pitched his perfect game. Steps back up onto the mound, tucks the baseball in his right hand, now into the glove, holds it in front of the letters, nods yes, the wind, the one-two pitch, Swing, and a ground ball left side, Castro's got it, spins, throws, he got him! A perfect game for Roy Halladay, 27 up and 27 down. Halladay's mobbed at the mound as the Phillies celebrate perfection tonight in Miami. 
Maybe you get a little excited like I did reading that, or maybe you feel like you're watching a black and white film because I sound like I'm from the 1920s. <laughs> Hearing that brings a smile to my face. After this perfect game, Roy Halladay was interviewed after his 40-minute post-game workout routine. Dude's a, dude was a beast. He said, the journey is always better than the destination. The journey's always better than the destination. For him, becoming one of the greatest pitchers of all time and pitching the perfect game wasn't fulfilling in and of itself. He found a sort of happiness in that perfect game, but even more so in the work of becoming great. But even that would not last. Sadly, only seven years after that apex moment, Halliday's life ended when he crashed in his personal aircraft. And after the wreckage was analyzed, it appeared that he had taken his own life intentionally. It was a horrible tragedy. I'm not trying to minimize the pain that I felt, but his family felt, and the whole city was grieving. But Halliday's life is an illustration of the emptiness of the world's offer of happiness. There's a, there's a chase. There's a journey. It feels fulfilling while you're making progress, but you get to the end. And all that's left is a vacuum. Even the greatest of earthly joys will come to an end. After the rush, after the pleasure, the excitement will give way to emptiness. But in our passage, brothers and sisters, we see a whole different order of joy and happiness that results from placing our confidence in God. Joy in the journey and joy that gives way to everlasting fullness. Verse 9 says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. It's a whole being gladness. Notice how he said, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. This isn't just like a cold posturous, I have joy and I'm not actually happy. This is actually like you are happy. You're feeling happy, even as you determine to be happy. This is not just a, oh, thank you, Lord. This is a hallelujah, full body, my whole being is glad. David danced so hard his clothes fell off one time. I'm not going to do that today. But we get the picture of the kind of joy that this should inspire in us, right? We should get excited about this. It's glorious. Here's a word for all those who feel joyless this morning. Not condemnation. Don't, feel, don't beat yourself up. But hope. Joy is possible. Joy is coming. Submitting to God as your Lord, claiming Him as your beautiful inheritance, encountering His strength in your battles and in your rest will then cause an unstoppable swell of happiness to result in your life. And this, friends, the, the, the happiness we experience in part now will give future joy. It will give way to even greater joy. Verse 11 says, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That, that verse has particular meaning to me because I preached it at my grandmother's funeral as she had recently given her life to Christ. 
And just knowing that she would personally, at the right hand of God, experience joy upon joy, not in extraction from God, but personally coming from Him. Fullness of joy. That is your future. Even as you experience real whole body gladness now, you know it's getting better. Barnabas Piper wrote a book called True Happiness, and this is what he writes about that verse. This verse moves us from our present life to our eternal life with God. And just look at the words David uses, joy, pleasures, fullness, forever. These words are jackhammers of happiness, shattering our misconceptions and breaking down the false barriers we have put around the truth that God wants us to be happy. We think He doesn't want us to be happy, but we're so wrong. He wants a happiness for us that's so much beyond what we could ever want or dream of. What He doesn't want is He doesn't want us to settle for a lesser happiness. He wants us to find the kind of happiness we can find in Him. And so sometimes, like a faithful surgeon, He must operate. He must pull the poison from our veins from the snake bite before it spreads to our body. But all of it is for His glory and with the the ultimate goal that in Him being glorified, we will be happy and filled with pleasure. He has given us all that we need to find happiness Himself. And not just sparse or fleeting happiness. In His presence is joy without lack or flaw. And with Him there is no end of pleasure. No haunting feeling as the vacation comes to an end. No haunting feeling when the honeymoon phase uh, wears off on marriage. No fleeting feeling as your kids leave the home. As your hair falls out, happiness forevermore. Do you see the surpassing happiness promised here? A happiness in the presence of God at His right hand, given incredible access. A while ago, I read a mental health poll for 2020 from Gallup. And the statistics were scary. It was right in the middle of the pandemic. People were struggling across the board. Everyone reported lower mental health, uh, worse, worse mental health than the beginning of the year, except for one group. It was those who weekly attended church. Not that there's something magical about walking through the doors, but because when we fix our eyes on God, the source of our strength, the result is what? Happiness and joy and wellness of mind. As things open back up, we need to commit to weekly attendance in churches. Now, I understand everybody's got a different situation, different health concerns, but I did watch a bunch of people in Buffalo, New York, gather in six degrees last night with a wind chill of negative six degrees to watch their team win a playoff game, and I'm pretty sure we can do better than them. Brothers and sisters, let's place our confidence in God by gathering together and fixing our eyes on the Lord. That's where the happiness that we long for flows from. Let's place our confidence in God 
who's our only good. Let's claim him as our only portion. Let's call him our beautiful inheritance. Let's cast aside the many different places we're tempted to wander towards to hedge our bets with God. And let's not trust a little here, a little there. Maybe one will work out. Let's, let's put all of our hope, all of our trust in the God who is worthy of our confidence. Faith in God can sing through days of sorrow. All must be well. And we can find happiness in sorrow. And we can lament and turn to praise even as the psalmists do. And we can feast and laugh and have football game parties without guilt. We can sing without a care of the sound of our voice because the Spirit of God in sustaining us produces a contentment and a others orientation, a God orientation that no longer is consumed with ourselves or what's going to happen next, but frees us to say, I shall not be shaken because I'm the Lord's and He is my beautiful inheritance. Oh, friends, may we experience strength rising with joyful songs even now as we turn to sing, as we fix our eyes and our hearts on the Savior. And you can know that even though I'm at Covenant, you're here at Risen, we're all fixing our eyes on the same Savior. And this is only but a brief moment in time before we will spend eternity together at the right hand of God, experiencing His fullness. Lord, would you do a work in us for those who are in the place of preserve me, place of deliver me. May they move even now to a place of I shall not be shaken. For those who are feeling lonely, don't feel like they have friends. May they experience the excellence of the saints in the land. For those who feel like they don't have a future, would they see that they have you as their inheritance? And would they see that at your right hand there's a future coming of pleasures forevermore? Forgive us, O God, for the times we seek to place our confidence in other places and sanctify us to be truly following you, happy in you, glorifying you for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.